Several years ago, there was a movie that I remember seeing. In fact, I think it was before I actually entered into ministry. The whole idea behind the movie was it was an Andy Griffith movie. And he played the pastor of a small town church that was going through some real difficulties. The church, as you come to know, is one that is known as a preacher eater. It's one that those that came to minister faced such conflict, such difficulty, that they would tend to drive people out. The movie is called Angel in My Pocket, is the name of the movie. Now, be careful if you go online to look it up. I found out there's a movie of another kind, uh, of an adult nature, that is also by that name. Um, So that's not the movie I'm recommending. (laughs) But the movie I'm recommending is this one by Andy Griffith. And in one of the scenes, and I thought about using it, but I don't know, it just didn't, didn't... wasn't appropriate, but in one of the scenes, the pastor hears of a movie theater, an old movie theater that now is a burlesque theater, in which they have this wonderful organ, and they never use it. And so the pastor decides that he's going to go and talk to the owner and manager of this theater and see whether or not he was willing to donate the organ to the church. They Their organ was destroyed, and this was back in the days when in order to do church service, you know, now to do church service, you need an overhead projector. Back in those days, you needed a piano and an organ. And so he goes into this theater and begins to interact with the manager. And, of course, he parks his car outside and walks in. Well, as he's doing that, there are two old biddies from the church that see him walking into this theater. He begins to interact with the manager asking him about the organ and through some negotiation and reminding him that it would be a tax write-off and all of these kinds of things, the manager says, yes, you can have the pipe organ. I will give it to you. I will donate it to the church. Well, in excitement, the pastor sits down at this wonderful organ and as amateurish as he is, he begins to play The song, just excited about getting the organ. And, of course, his back is to the stage. Well, what he doesn't know as he's playing this song is one of the burlesque dancers comes out and begins to do a bit of her burlesque routine to him playing. Well, you know what happens. At just that time, the two old biddies have finished their shopping and they notice that after they've been shopping for 30 minutes or so, the pastor's car is still outside of the theater. And so they look in. (laughs) Just as the burlesque dancer is finishing her routine. What would you do? How would you handle that? As those two women are looking in and the organ is donated and the next Sunday they're playing the organ, of course, these two women make sure that all the leadership knows that the pastor is playing at a burlesque show. 
and the rumors start. If you've ever been involved in leadership, if you've ever been involved in relationship with people and relationships that are of a a deeper nature with people, there comes times in those relationships, there comes time in those leadership situations where like that pastor of that little church, you are falsely accused and the rumors start. One of the funny things that happened years ago, the men's uh, group down in Louisiana, we went to a Promise Keepers event. And we were staying in this dormitory together and one of the guys that was up on the air conditioning vent, a Hershey's kiss. Well, I was joking around and I just grabbed that. It, it was a boy's dorm. Who knows how I got up there? And I grabbed this thing and, and thought the person I was interacting with had seen me do it. And I said, hey, you want a Hershey kiss? He grabs it and throws it in his mouth. Well, we were teasing about what the headline would be. Church man becomes sick after kiss from pastor. (laughs) Now, that was a funny one. But being in leadership, I've been accused of all kinds of things. I remember being accused of telling people that, telling a person that they ought to go out and have an affair. Now, it was in a counseling situation, and there was confidentiality there, and I don't even remember the statement. I'm sure it was more something like, boy, if you're going to act like that, if that's what you're really doing, why don't you just be honest and go out, you know. But the rumor started, pastor told somebody to go have an affair. If you're involved in leadership, if you interact with people, those kinds of things are going to happen. And the question becomes, how do you respond? How do you deal with false accusations? How do you deal with the gossip mill? How do you deal with two older gossipy people in your church that start the rumors that pastor is playing at a burlesque theater for dancers? How do you deal with it? One of the reasons why I decided to preach in 2 Corinthians is because 2 Corinthians is sort of a raw book where Paul is dealing with some very real situations that we all face. Last week, we looked at the fact that Paul was dealing with a time of real discouragement, a a time in which his heart was broken, in which he was crushed down. And we took a look at how he dealt with that and the openness that he allowed before others in order that they could see the struggle that he was going through. But as we come to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, And beginning there in verse 12, Paul deals with a specific aspect of some of the struggles that are going on between Paul the Apostle and this church at Corinth. And one of the problems 
was that the rumor mill had started. And he was being falsely accused of all kinds of things. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 12, he addresses that. Now, what I find so interesting in this passage, and one of the things that I was sort of in a, in a quandary this week as to exactly how to preach this passage is that one of the coolest things is as Paul is dealing with this pragmatic situation in his life of dealing with those that are spreading false rumors about him, dealing with those who are gossiping, there are some of the most incredible theological statements that are also found in this passage. As Paul is writing and he's saying, this is what I have done. This is what I am doing. This is how I am responding to what you are doing towards me, Corinthian church. Paul just has these statements that explode with the theology. And the quandary I was in is, do I preach this in a pragmatic kind of way, looking at the struggle Paul had and the specific ways that he deals with it? And you get the theme of that when you read there in verse, the beginning of, the end of verse 13, the beginning of verse 14, where he says, and I hope that as you have understand, understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us, just as we boast of you in the day of the Lord. Paul says, the whole reason I'm writing this is that I want to explain to you. You have a little partial understanding of what's going on. You you saw the person, you saw the, the pastor sitting at the organ. But I want to explain the full reality of what's going on so that there can be an honoring of our relationship. But the other way, Paul writes this is as he's dealing with that the theology is so important to him he bases what he does on his knowledge of God and what God is about there are a couple phrases we're not going to take a lot of time and I'm trying to decide I haven't decided yet if Maybe we'll look at them next week or just move on in the passage. But as you read down through here there's some theology that just jumps out at you The first one is the theology of the end days and what we're going to face after our death. And he talks about the day of the Lord. And he talks about the fact that we're all going to give an account. And he talks about the fact that there's a day of judgment for the believer, not for punishment. But to take a look at our works, to take a look at the way we've served the Lord, to take a look at our motives and the quality of what we've done to to determine how he will reward his children for their faithfulness. That's a foundation of what what Paul is interacting about here. There's an incredible statement concerning exegesis, concerning the study of God's word as Paul is talking about his writings. And he writes there and he talks about the fact that in his writings, he writes in a way that that, um, that you can read it and you can understand it and there's nothing hidden in it. That there's a plainness to the text. And when you read Paul, Paul doesn't have some hidden meaning underneath that you have to be some kind of super spiritual, super apostle, which was part of the struggle in the Corinthian church. But just read it. 
And you can come to understand what it's all about. In this passage, there's this incredible Trinitarian declaration. As he's talking about the fact that you can be certain of the message that Paul is giving, not simply because of who Paul is, but more importantly of where that message comes from. And you begin reading there in verse 20. For no matter how many promises God has has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God, that is the Father, who makes both us and you stand in Christ, the second person of the Godhead. He anointed us, set a seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit. And you see Paul declaring Trinitarian theology that says the very foundation of my confidence, of my certainty, of my boast is found in the fact that God is Father, God is Son, and God is Holy Spirit. Theology is the underpinning of what we understand. It is the foundation on which we build our lives. And on that foundation, Paul then responds to the struggle that's going on. Paul responds to the false accusations. Paul responds to the gossip. Paul responds to the stories that are being told. But he does so based on his knowledge of who God is and what God is doing. Now, we'll take a few minutes to look at that, but the real focus of the message this morning is this. How do you deal with false accusations? And what Paul does as he deals with these accusations, he makes it very clear that it is persistent faithfulness that is the way to overcome false accusation. Not through attacking, not through defensiveness, but just through faithfulness. Now, we need to understand a little bit of what's going on. And what we come to understand is this, that anyone can be falsely accused. No matter how apostolic you may be, no matter how much an instrument of God's work, you can be falsely accused. And that's what's going through Well, that's what's taking place here in the book of 2 Corinthians. And as you read through the book, there are a number of different occasions where you get a sense of what they're accusing Paul of. You see, the Corinthian church was saying of Paul that he was worldly, that he was an untrustworthy charlatan, leading the church to reject his gospel message. There were some in the church, in fact, a major part of the church for a while, that was saying, you can't trust Paul. You can't believe what he has to say. Don't trust his message. Look at the kind of man he is. Look at the kind of ministry he has. You can't can't accept what he's saying. And they began to reject his ministry. Paul. The Corinthian church was doing what is known as building paper. Have you ever built paper on somebody? If you're a boss and you have a terrible employee, you begin to build paper. 
Build paper means you keep a record of all the things that they are doing. So when the day comes that you may have to get rid of them, you have a catalog of reasons for which to dismiss them. Now, if you've ever had paper built on you, you have to be so careful because no matter what you do, it can be interpreted negatively. And that's what they do to Paul. They begin to accuse him of all kinds of things. And as you read through the book of 2 Corinthians, you you see some of those accusations. There's some here, but there's others that that appear in other passages. They they say of Paul this, he is always sick, or he's always got something he's struggling with. Oh, he's shipwrecked, and and he's been thrown to animals, and he's been beaten several times. Look, I mean, God can't be blessing him, can he? And they used the struggles of Paul in his ministry to condemn him and to declare he can't be a real servant of God. They use his sicknesses. We don't know what they were to to say God can't be for him. God can't be in his ministry. Look, Look how often he's sick and what is so interesting. It was Paul's sickness that brought him to Corinth where he was able to establish that church and God used that very thing that they're now condemning to bring him to Corinth where he would establish this church and preach the gospel. But now it's a source of building paper. They say of Paul, he's unimpressive and he's inconsequential. He's, he's not a real orator. He's not real fancy in his, in his presentations. He's sort of basic in the words that he uses. And he's not a real, you know, his, his rhetoric, his, his ability to speak is not real polished. Look at him. He's not really an apostle. We have super apostles. But look at Paul. He's just so unimpressive. They say of him that he's manipulative and self-serving. They, they say that is Paul is recounting some of the things they are declaring of him. He says there as he's talking about his, his ministry with him and his interaction with him that he is not doing this out of worldliness. Later on, when he's talking about his preaching he, and, and his travel plans, he says, we're not worldly in our, in our, in our, our, our planning. We're not, we're not doing this outside of the Spirit of God. But they were coming to say, saying, he's just so worldly. He's just so self-serving. Being so worldly, his ministry is invalid. friend of mine, and I've told this story several times, and who was pastoring a church, and I, I met with him like a week before all of this happened, and we had gotten together, and we were talking. He was so excited because he and his wife were taking a vacation. As the pastor and his wife were on vacation, the church took a vote to fire him. And part of the reason was, why would he need time off? He's so worldly. 
You ever wonder why pastor's kids have such a struggle? Because they see that kind of junk all the time. He's just worldly. He wants a pay raise? <laughs> it's worldly. I don't need a pay raise. Okay. <laughs> I remember our next door neighbor. I, I, I was broken. I, 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 this couple, this sweet couple when we were in seminary, we lived in a luxury trailer. Ours was 12 by 60. Theirs was 10 by 50. They had two kids. The, the only wash machine and dryer they had was a little apartment one that was about that big. And, and they drove an old beat-up car. And I remember sitting down with them one time, and you know, we were talking about cars, and we had a Pinto. And he was envious of my Pinto. And he said, you know, I used to have a wonderful car. It happened to be a European car. But I had to get rid of it because all the people in my church were talking about how wrong it was for me to have this kind of car. That I was being worldly. Don't do that to me. I won't take it like he did. They're just worldly. But this was the big one in this passage. He's frivolous and deceptive. He says one thing and does another thing. You can't trust anything that man says. Now you need to know why they were accusing him of that. It's found in the center part of this passage when in verse 15 he says, Because I was confident of this, I planned to visit you first so that you might benefit twice. In, in, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, I'm going to come and I'm going to work my way through Macedonia and then I'm going to come to you, Corinth, and, and collect the, the offering that's taking place and then go on my way to Jerusalem. But then he decided, you know what, it might be better if instead of that, I'm going to come from Ephesus to Corinth. And then from Corinth, go north to Macedonia. And then come back south to Corinth again. And then make my way to Jerusalem. Giving you a double blessing. Giving you a double opportunity to be involved in this collection for the saints in Jerusalem. And a double opportunity to be blessed by the ministry that God has given me. But none of that happened. You see, what originally looked like was this. Paul was going to, to leave Ephesus. He was going to head north up through Corinth and then, and, I mean, sorry, head up towards Philippi, then south towards Corinth and then down towards Jerusalem. But that plan didn't work out. So I said, you know what? Instead, what I'm going to do is sail from Ephesus over to Corinth, go up to Philippi, back down to Corinth, and then to Jerusalem. That didn't work out. For you see, when he left Ephesus and went to Corinth, the church excoriated him. The church tore him apart. And to keep from having to be disciplining of that church, he left and returned to Ephesus and went up to Philippi. And do you know what they were saying? He's just a man you can't believe a word he says. 
He said he was coming, and then he doesn't come, and he was really just trying to manipulate us. First he says yes, but when he said yes, he really meant no. And, and the big problem for Paul wasn't just the accusation, but as you begin to read down, their attitude was this. You can't believe a single thing he says. Now that's a problem. Because their understanding of salvation and faith was based on what Paul said. And this was being used by those that were trying to mislead the church at Corinth to say, you see how he changes his mind? He can't be led by the Holy Spirit. You can't believe a single word he says. Now, when you look at Paul, he will address that, and we're going to look at that in a moment. But you need to understand that Paul is not motivated to address this simply in order to defend his reputation. It's not his reputation that drives him. In some way, he, he says, and we'll see this in a moment, I could care less what you think. Except when what you are thinking and those accusations affect what is central. Paul was motivated to address these accusations in response to the damage they inflicted on the message of the gospel. Paul says, you are looking at the gospel and you're beginning to believe based on these accusations that the message of Jesus is yes and no, that sometimes he's going to fulfill his promises and sometimes he's not. And Paul says, that's not so. In Jesus, it is always yes. God is always faithful. And whether you believe in us or not, whether you believe in that person or not, God's word is sure. And Paul was so concerned that they were taking these accusations and using it to condemn the gospel and the truth of God's word. The other thing that Paul was so concerned about, you see it all the way through this epistle, is Paul was motivated to address these accusations in response to the church's failure to understand the character of Christian life. They were prosperity doctrine people. They really believe that strength and and power in ministry is not found in the spirit, but in the flashiness of what is taking place. There's a show on TV, it's called Tanked. You ever watch it? It's these two guys that build aquariums. And I don't really watch it, but I was flipping stations the other night. And I came across one, and they were building a 154,000-gallon aquarium in a church. It was the entrance to the church. And it was this acrylic. It's in Dallas, of course. Everything like that's in Dallas. It's just sort of this acrylic thing that you walk through with these fish just, you know, swimming around. I know that some in the church just absolutely hate fountains in the church. I wonder what would happen if you put an aquarium in the church. And the whole idea was, look, we are such a successful church. We can build a 156,000-gallon aquarium. And my response was, how many missionaries could that support? 
Now, I understand the, the idea of wanting to give my best to the Lord. And I'm going to let them stand before the Lord and give account of what they did. But it's that idea that somehow bigger and flashier and more exciting is what it's all about. That, that God is, is, is required to just bless our socks off and everything be good and everything be wonderful. and There, there be no struggles and, and those that are like that are the ones that are really blessed by God. That's the way the Corinthians were thinking. And Paul said, we've got to change this. God is not found in prosperity. God is not found in circumstance. God is not found in in abundance. God is found in our relationship with Jesus Christ and the presence of his spirit in our lives and how he works through even the most difficult of circumstances. The Corinthians weren't understanding that. And so in order to make things right, Paul deals with this issue. He deals with these false accusations and he basically declares that persistent faithfulness is the evidence of our authenticity. It's the evidence of the legitimacy of God's work in and through us. It's not flashiness. It's not the... the, the rhetoric that we use when we speak. It's not how big an aquarium we have when we walk into the church. Those, are, those may be wonderful things. But it's the authenticity of the, message in their message, of the messenger and his message. Now, in order to understand that, you need to understand what Paul says. He, he says, this is what I'm doing. And you begin there in verse 12. And he says, this is his address. This is how he deals with those that are falsely accusing him. And the first thing he talks about, notice in verse, chapter 1, verse 12. Now, this is our, and notice the next word, boast. Now, we don't like the word boasting. We think of boasting in a negative way. We think of boasting as, I am so good. I am so smart. I am so fill in the blank, rich, powerful. I'm somebody. But in the biblical use of the word boast, it can either be negative or positive. A boast is just that which I hold up for a claim. What I think is significant in my life what I think demonstrates the value of my life or my ministry. What do I hold up to demonstrate that? If I hold up that which brings glory and honor to me, that's negative boasting. That's destructive boasting. That's the boasting that Paul will do later in this letter when he says, I'm crazy, but in order to kind of deal with those in the church that are doing that kind of boasting, if I want to get into that, I am just as good as they are. Paul says that's foolishness. But the good kind of boasting is when we hold up for a claim that which is evidence of God's work in our lives. And that's what Paul means here by boasting. Paul says, let me show you what allows me to say my ministry is authentic. And it's not the things you think. 
It's not the fanciness of my rhetoric. It's not the, the fanciness of the chariot that I drive. Now it would be car. It's not those kinds of things. Paul says, what I boast in is God's work in my life and the evidence that he is at work in my life. It's the same as what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah chapter 9 when he says this, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. How do I legitimize my ministry? By the fanciness of my words, by the degrees, by the ring that I happen to have on my finger that says I graduated with this degree? Now, I like my ring. Cindy, we were talking, when you get in your 60s, you have some very strange conversations. And this morning as we're driving in and we had my, the, the ring had kind of fallen off uh, last night and Cindy found it and she said, now I guess when you die, I should bury you with that ring. <laughs> that's not an indication. If I hold up a ring, that's just selfish boasting. Let not the strong man boast in his strength or his power. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, what's significant in my life? What authenticates my life? What authenticates ministry? Let him boast about this. That he understands and knows God. Exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness does the things that delight the Lord. Paul says, okay, you're attacking, and as a result, the ministry is being torn down. As a result, the message is being torn down. Let's talk about what authenticates, what I will hold up to show that there is honor in what God is doing. And he begins to go down through the list here in 2 Corinthians 12. The first thing he says is this verifying authenticity. What I hold up is built on a self-evaluation which assesses conformity to God's will and purpose. Where do I see that? I see it in just one little word. He says, now this is our boast. Our conscience testifies. The word conscience there is not that little voice inside that says, eh, everything's fine. Remember those cartoons? Uh, those of you who are younger probably don't remember these. But the cartoons where the, the character would have the angel on one side and the devil on the other side, and the angel would be saying, you know, do this, do that. The devil would be saying, no, 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 do this. That's not what Paul is talking about here. The idea of conscience here is the idea of taking my actions and, and looking at them and seeing whether they conform to the character of God, to the purposes of God, to the direction of God, to the will of God. I take a look at my life and I say, is my life in conformity to the image of Christ within me? Am I showing the kind of kindness? Am I showing the kind of love? Am I showing the kind of, of grace and mercy that is a part of what God is like? Am I Christ to those that live around me as a demonstration of him in my life? As I read through the New Testament and I come to understand what, what I'm called to be like and yes, how far we all fall short of that. But it's where I show God's character in my life. 
Not because of who I am, but because of who he is in me. When it conforms to that, Paul says, I have a good conscience. He says it a number of places in, in the scriptures. In Acts chapter 24, verse 16, as he's describing his ministry, he says this, So I strive always to keep my conscience clear, to evaluate what I'm doing, to look at what I'm doing, and to make sure that it is in conformity to what is right, both before God and man. I have a good conscience. But you know the problem with evaluation? is Sometimes I can deceive myself. And so Paul says, even when I'm looking and, and I'm examining my life and comparing it to God's standards, I'm always cautious. And here's why. My conscience is clear. I think I am in alignment with what God is doing. And I think I'm in alignment with God's character. And I think I'm in alignment with God's will and purpose for my life and the life of others. But that's not what makes me innocent. Because it's the Lord who will judge. And the word judge there doesn't mean, you know, banging of the gavel saying, you know, you go to prison or, or you are eternally separated from me. The idea of judge there is the one who gives the final assessment that this was good or not. He says, therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive, you notice, not condemnation from God, but praise from God. The reality of it is, my conscience, I might think I'm in conformity and may not be. And so Paul says, you know what? There's something else we did that helps us to overcome those when they're falsely accusing us. And that is a verifying authenticity. It's built upon openness and transparency. In the scripture, if you have the NIV and you're reading there in verse 12, it says, now this is our, our, our boast. Our conscience testifies that we conducted ourselves in the world and especially in, in relationship with you in holiness and sincerity. Now, there's some question as to whether or not the word there that's translated holiness should be holiness or the sense of openness. They're spelled very similar, and some of the manuscripts have one, some of the manuscripts have other. The NIV chose holiness. I think it's better to take it as openness. And what Paul says is, you want to be clear? You want to know whether or not your conscience is saying the right thing? Be willing to be open. Be willing to be transparent. Let people know your life. Last week, tell your story. Both the victories and the struggles. Both the difficulties and the, and, and the, 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 you know, the times when you've overcome. Tell your story. Let others hear it. Let others interact. And those that are close to you, those that are, that, are, that, are, that are intimate in your relationships, can come and say, you know what? Thank you for sharing that. But I wonder if. Paul says we are open. And then the second word, transparency, literally means this. To judge in the brightness 
of the Son to open it up. Let the light shine on your life. The more transparent you are as a person, the less sense of hiding you'll feel, the less sense of of, of uncertainty. As, as I'm open and people and we walk together in our struggles, I can be sure or unsure as to whether or not that sense of good conscience is really from the spirit of my own self-deception. Paul says, you know how we verify our ministry? We're open. I'll tell you the truth. There's nothing to hide. Verifying authenticity is also found as you read down through the passage is built upon a dependence on God rather than on worldly or manipulative tactics. Paul, as he's writing and he's, he's talking about his, his interaction with them, he says, we don't do things there in the middle of uh, verse, or the end of verse 12. We have, we have done so not according to worldly wisdom. I don't use the techniques of the world. I don't use the manipulativeness of the world. I allow God to work. I speak the truth and let God do with it what he will choose to do. And each of these little phrases tell us about how we can have a a good standing before people, even when they're falsely accusing us. The next one, as you read down, he talks about the communication, how he talks to people. And he says that we have done nothing according to worldly wisdom, but according to God's grace. For we do not write you anything you cannot read or understand. We're open. You can understand us. We're not trying to manipulate you. We're not trying to say yes, but really mean no, and no, and really mean yes. We're, we're, our communication is open and honest and true. We're not trying to exaggerate. We're not trying to minimize. Here is the reality. Verifying authenticity. Rest on a knowledge that all will be revealed. Paul says there's a day coming when the truth will be known. And I will rest in that. And that's where he uses the phrase at the end there, verse 14, of the day of the Lord. Paul says it will all be made known. And then finally, Verifying authenticity is demonstrated by the impact of God's work in others accomplished through our faithfulness. Paul says, if you want to see whether or not God is really at work, what is God doing in your life through that? That's what Paul says as he writes there at the end of this passage. And he talks about the fact that in, in Christ that, that God is speaking yes. And he's talking about the ministry that he's had among the, 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 uh, the Corinthian church. And how God has used their message to move them, to anoint them, to declare, to, to bring the power of the Holy Spirit in their midst. God says, look at what God has done through this relationship. When you read 2 Corinthians and you come to this first chapter and Paul is saying, there are those that will falsely accuse me. Paul's answer is not to attack them, not to condemn them, 
not to try to stomp them, not to try to manipulate them. He simply says, I will be open and I will be truthful and I will accept God's judgment. And it is in that kind of authenticity that the false accusations of others are put to silence. Beloved, I think we're about to enter a time in the Christian church where false accusations will become the major part of our lives. I think we're going to live in a time like the first century where Christians were known as atheists, cannibals, and crazy. So much so that they were justified in throwing them to animals and destroying them. There will come a time, I think, if we take a Christian stance based on the authority of God's word, where the world will condemn us. If we say we believe that marriage is between a man and a woman, one man, one woman, we're going to be called judgmental and immoral. There's coming a time when we say, you know, I believe that God has created us male and female. Now, there are biological struggles and things that go on. Yes, we we can be sensitive and understanding of that, but we're going to be called immoral. There's a time coming when we begin to talk about a person's struggle and talk about sin in a person's life. We're going to be known as judgmental and self-righteous. Now, sometimes we come across self-righteous. But simply because of the message, that time is coming. And as that time approaches, it's going to be essential that we respond as Paul responded, with authenticity, that is open, that is honest, that seeks God's evaluation, that is based on the fact and the certainty that in the end all will be right and declares the message and allowing it to have impact in others' lives. There will come a time when we will face that. If you are a leader, you're probably facing it now, wherever it may be. But Paul says it's through that verifying authenticity that we can address the false accusations of others. Father, thank you for the example that Paul plays before us. I pray, Lord, that we would be those that demonstrate that openness, that vulnerability, that sense of self-evaluation that seeks your input in our lives. Father, may we be the kind of people in our lives to our world that are winsome, that draw others. Father, our message at time will be offensive. But Father, thank you that as we live our lives, you work through those to have impact in others. Allow your spirit to work through us in the lives of others to demonstrate the truth of your grace and your mercy. Father, begins with our relationship with you through your son. And each Sunday we invite anyone who's not certain of that relation to come and to be certain, to speak to someone here up front or somewhere as part of the leadership to know what that relationship means. 
Father, we pray that you would help us to be those that through that relationship, we demonstrate the authenticity of our relationship with you. To your glory, to your honor, we ask it in the name of your son. Amen.